Hello and welcome to Soundtracking with me, Edith Bowman. Uh, before I plough in, I just wanted to say uh, a big thank you to everybody down at the Bridport Film Festival in Dorset, which I was at this weekend. This has been a bit of a two-year project because my good friend Nick Goldsmith, who used to be the producing partner of Garth Jennings, um, they made such great films like Son of Rambo and Hitchhiker's Guide um, before um, uh, Garth went on to do Sing and Things and, and Nick now works in it with an amazing charity. What he also does is he lives in Bridport and he is on the committee for the Bridport Film Festival. And he kindly asked me if I would be interested to help curate uh, the festival. That was two years ago. Um, and what was really nice was he allowed me to have this kind of thread of soundtracks through the decades. So we had things like the original King Kong. Uh, we had the original West Side Story. I've talked a lot about that. Um, what else do we have? Under My Skin, uh, Paris, Texas, a really amazing collection of films. And it was great to be down there and to introduce the films and do some Q&As. So I just wanted to say thank you so much to everybody uh, who attended the festival, to the committee. Uh, and if you feel like a trip to Dorset, then I can highly recommend it's a beautiful little town. And the Bridport Film Festival is an annual thing. The whole thing is from page to screen. So it's about adaptations. And they've got some beautiful venues and lots of other extra stuff going on. So please do check it out if you fancy um, attending in future years. So thank you very much to everybody at Bridport Film Festival. I had a great time. Uh, but our latest guest on soundtracking is many things. A musician, artist, cultural icon and film, TV and video game composer. How does he fit it all in? Who's been plying his trade for 50 odd years and doesn't show any sign of slowing down or stopping at all. Among Mark Mothersborough's many credits are Rugrats, Thor Ragnarok, Lego Movies, Everything is Awesome and several Wes Anderson films, though we'd be here for a good half a day if I were to list every single one of the projects that he's been involved with. Now we'll cover as much uh, ground as we possibly can shortly, but first a little word from our good friends at Skillshare, who we've partnered with on the podcast this week. Now, you know, if you listen to this podcast regularly, that with every episode, one of the things that I love about doing this is with every interview that I do, I learn so much. I'm so hungry uh, and I continue to be hungry to kind of fuel my brain and knowledge with the extraordinary and varied insights our guests provide. Well, Skillshare is the world's largest online learning community for creativity. It offers you the inspiration and opportunity to learn new skills, find new ways of putting your talents to use and empowering you to reach your full potential. I've been taking full advantage of quite a few of the classes, um, one on writing, one on using social media properly um, and some more personal things like meditation. There's an impressive array of opportunities to explore at all levels. The incredible range of classes on offer are a really good way to tap into something that you might already be interested in or find that new side to yourself. There's a real sense of community with the classes as well, which have a great level of interaction with both fellow members and teachers. Now, the commitment is in your hands with monthly, annual or an unlimited plan all on offer. And as part of the Soundtracking family, how would you like to start your journey with a one month free trial? Explore your creativity at skillshare.com forward slash sound and get a one month free trial. That's one month free at skillshare.com forward slash sound. 
And so to Mark. And I think we'll begin with the song that really made Devo's name and still sounds absolutely brilliant over 40 years after it was released. I am, of course, talking about Whip It. Good, how are you? Peachy. Awesome. Glad to hear it. Thank you so much for your time today. Oh, my pleasure. I also need to say thank you as well, because when I had my first kid, we spent a lot of time watching Yo Gabba Gabba. We absolutely loved that show so much. We had it on DVD um, because we couldn't get access to it that easily over here in the UK. I watched it so much that the DVD stopped playing. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we loved it so much uh so they were so you yeah they were so excited when i when i told them i was going to be chatting to you so thank you it was kind of a refreshing show i liked that show also. yeah it really was it was it was it was so great it would be remiss of me to even make any kind of assumption that we could cover a hundredth of 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 your career and what you do within the time that we have but i hope you don't mind if we we talk specifically about film scoring and and working on 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 films well I guess it'd be interesting to find out for you as a if there's a differentiation between whether you are working on a film or a tv show or a game or you know whether music wise you're creating music for to be part of someone else's you know collaborative vision I guess when I first started doing music who was with Devo. I mean, you know, I was writing music before that, but and just kind of experimenting and learning how to do things. But Devo was my the band that I that really I started with. And and it was two sets of brothers. And we were very collaborative. And we always, you know, like um, no matter who wrote a song, everybody chipped in and helped out on it. And and uh, no matter what project we were working on, it, it was a lot of collaboration. So it felt really natural. Mm. But when I kind of segued into um, entertainment industry and, and uh, the differences between films and TV shows and games and things, they are quite different. They have quite different trajectories. But... Um, I like getting to be brought into other people's projects and be part of the creative team for them. Yeah. That's enjoyable for me. Well, I guess even back with the band, it, it wasn't just about music for you guys. Visual arts was such ingrained in, in what you were making. You know, it was, it was, it was part of the whole package really as well. You weren't just creating music. You were 
creating so much more around that. Yeah, you know, Jerry and I met, we were at Kent State, we were both uh, visual artists, and we were collaborating on visual art projects before we we started working on music together. So uh, we, we actually thought of Devo as kind of, in some ways, we thought of it visually first and, and sonically second. working on a on a film project is each project a different point at where you're involved in it or do you have a a way that you like to work do you do you like to work from script do you like to work from um being being privy to to first cuts to dailies is every project different for different reasons you come into things at different places and i mean there there used to be a thing where it was very common that you they'd call you in like two months before they were ready to go into the theater and they'd have a film pretty well put together but nowadays it's different i mean in and uh the pandemic even exploded every every other possibility into you know there was long arcs to a couple of the movies i've done recently and uh i don't know i i kind of try to make the best of all that stuff it's like um, I, I like animation because there is such a long gestation period to it that, and you know, if you, especially if you did the first one and then you're doing the second, third, or fourth one, you know, you get brought in sooner and uh, you get to have more of an influence on how the visuals go. But you also you have more of a dialogue with the people you're working with uh, if you're if they're repeat clients as opposed to first time. <laughs> you know, it's like like you people kind of you know figure things out the first time it's like and and music is something kind of interesting there's an interesting element to it is unlike editing or lighting or something it's Mm -hmm. not like it's like with editing you can say a number of frames you can say a certain amount of seconds or a simply time code number and that's where they want to cut uh with music they say things like make it uh happier or make it (laughs) dark or scary or maybe you know they they you know you have they use um abstract terminology and and so half of the fun for me is when i meet somebody new is like seeing how long it takes to get into their brain and figure out what they mean by any of those words that they use i don't know it's a yes i I feel lucky that i that i uh stumbled onto this this, uh, (laughs) job (laughs) how did you how did it start for you in terms of that step into to composing in this way i never thought 
of Devo as a pop band at yeah. all. I thought of it as an art experiment and, a, and an art statement and a political statement. You know, we thought about things differently than a lot of people that were trying to figure out, how do I get something on the radio? You know, I wasn't yeah. thinking that way. But as, you know, as Devo kind of had our our, fish, our first arc, you know, like the big arc, and uh, I had been offered to, to score some things by different people, including Paul Paul Rubin, who had asked me to score his first film and mm-hmm. couldn't because Devo was touring. And then uh, when he had his TV show, Devo was kind of in this suspended, anima- animated, you know, suspended cocoon hibernation mode or something. You know, we were just kind of waiting for uh, another record deal uh, to get all worked out. So I had time. And uh, what was interesting to me about it was I'd been doing an album where you'd write 12 songs, you know, spend a couple months writing 12 songs, then you'd rehearse them and go into a recording studio and record them. Then you'd put together album graphics and album covers and costumes and and choreography and a live show and shoot a film to go with it. Or, uh, now, you know, they started calling them videos way back. Yeah. So you'd shoot a video to go with one of the songs or two of the songs. And then you'd go out on tour for, you know, eight months, go around the world, and then you'd come back and then you'd write 12 more songs and start the process again. So it took about a year for for uh, that process to f- finish. And and with Pee Wee's Playhouse, I got a tape on a Monday. I wrote 12 songs worth of music on Tuesday. On th- Wednesday, I recorded it. On Thursday, I had to put it in a, a, a tape in the mail and, and physically send it to New York because we didn't have the internet. The internet wasn't capable of that stuff yet. <laughs> wow. On Friday, they would mix it into the show. And on Saturday, we'd watch watch it on TV. And then Monday, they'd send me another tape. And it was like I was writing an album every week. And that, to me, was wow. exciting. because, Although I like performance, I've always enjoyed creating more yeah. than, than performing. Because performing, you know, it's fun. I mean, it's, it's fun. It's like we're going to do shows this year. But it means we'll go back and we'll put on yellow suits that we did in 1977, 1976, and we'll come out and we'll play songs that we wrote when we were 25, you know. So it's like putting on your, you know, going, you know, it's like being, well, I might as well say it, I'm in my 71 now. But it's like putting on your cheerleading outfit from when you were 22 <laughs> and going out to do the old years. So I understand that's what people want to hear because, I mean, if David Bowie, came as a ghost tonight and said to me, Mark, I'm going to play you a show just for you. And I'm going to give you a choice. I'm going to play you a show with all brand new songs. No one's ever heard before. You'll be the first to hear them. Or I'm going to do the Ziggy Stardust uh, show that you that blew your mind and made you want to do do a, a band that had a, had a live show element to it. Um, what, what do you want? And I go, oh, can I just watch the old songs again? You can... <laughs> Play the new songs for somebody else, I, you know, and it's so it's that's what people want out of us, and so that's kind of that's kind of cool. For yeah, a couple of, you know, it's like to spend a lot of time on the road. It's it's like all time where I'd rather be writing new music instead or doing new artwork of some sort. Isn't it wonderful to think though that having created, been creating music for so long, that you have aid those fans that still want to hear you, but a whole new generation of fans who are inspired and want to see you live as well. That's wonderful. Yeah, what the heck? Yeah, what the heck's going on? 
but you know i love new music and so it's like when i did this show where i wrote an album's worth of music every week i said sign uh, me up for this job whatever it is this, <laughs> this is really interesting to me it's interesting as well when you think of something like rugrats that has been something that's been present for so long and and there's so much of it as well you know in terms of the tv series and there's been you know a few films and things like that as well but with 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 that type of thing where there's there's loads of it is that kind of and also when it's kind of because I believe we're getting a new Rugrats film as well which I'm so excited about but the idea that does the music change much in the fact that it's been what 30 years you know in terms of if you think about how the change in music over 30 years but within that show do you keep the music true to the time period of when it was created or how does that work? How do you navigate that journey of the music? Well, it's funny you say Rugrats um, uh, because uh, that's a particular show where they changed the visuals for the, the you know, bringing it back uh, last year. Mm-hmm. But uh, my brother and I, who created the music first time around, we were pretty, we were pretty um, stubborn with, with our music staying you know, really close to the original. So it's like, if you listen to the music that, and Bob's writing most of the new music. He, he wrote a lot. He wrote most of the mu- music of the Rugrats after I, I did the first year or two. And then he took over when the film started. I, I worked on the films and he did the, the TV show, but he's, yeah. he's been doing a TV show and, and he's been really good at keeping it. So it, it sounds true to, the original Rugrats and they'll when you know when they have songs and things like that mm-hmm. you know there's some of that changes you know what what the songs sound like the pop stuff you know if there's pop in it but you know he he's kept it pretty true to uh Rugrats I think mm-hmm. mind if we talk about a few specific films if that's okay just because I know we've got not loads of time but would that be okay if we talked about a few specific films and the and the score and the the stories behind that I mean a couple kind of from a few years back um Happy Gilmore being a film that I watched over and over and over and over again I loved I grew up in really near St Andrews so I have this kind of weird kind of connection with golf so anytime there's golf in a film, whether it's like Caddyshack or, you know, I kind of I have this instant draw to it in a weird way. But I love I mean, I loved Happy Gilmore. Such a great film. Would you remember about the experience of, of working on that, Mark? I think that's the first thing I ever did with Adam Sandler. Uh, Is it? Yeah, I think so. And um, he's a pretty, pretty nice guy, pretty easy to get along with. And uh I kind of already knew this, but it, it, with him, it became more extreme to get out of the way of the jokes. It's like, <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I knew that was the, <laughs> the case with him. But, but uh, yeah, I have some favorite scenes. I thought when him and Bob Barker, is it, get in a fist fight, you know, <laughs> he's having a fist fight with like a 60 year old man and a 70 year old man, and they're rolling yeah. down uh, into a tar pit, or, I mean, a sand pit or something, you know. And, <laughs> Good stuff in that film. <laughs> was that a case of um, were you sent a script? Was it was it 
was it that kind of read the script what do you think do you want to be involved yeah 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 and um yeah it was a good experience um i did most of the recording for it right here in the room where i'm sitting right now i mean i wrote in the room i'm sitting in right across from me there's a live room and and we did most of the recording here at the studio i've had a, a guest on the show who's talked a lot about your studio who kind of described it as a the kind of a kind of composer's playground and uh, and somewhere he he Taika um, talked about it. He was just kind of if you ever go to Mark's studio, you, it's just it's amazing. It's kind of just the most awesome place to kind of uh, to be and be inspired by. How important is that surrounding to you in terms of where you are when you're writing? I like uh, the technology to be as invisible as possible. Nice. Like the biggest trauma for me with writing music is things like if if my mouse gets set on some other setting than the one that I'm used to, and then, you know, then I'm like shooting the, the arrow out the side of the screen and then I'm trying to find it again. It's Don't like that. scroll properly. It's like, ah. <laughs> and, and that kind of stuff, that kind of stuff makes you, then ends up taking you out of <laughs> writing music and, and you're then you're all of a sudden into like, what, how do I make this stuff, <laughs> stupid stuff work? It's supposed to be making things easier for me, not harder. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it's like, so I, I'm, I kind of feel comfortable in this room. I've been here for so long. I've been in this room for like 30 years almost. We've le- left at some point, though, not literally been in that room for 30 years. That would just be so uh, They let me out every now and then. <laughs> yeah. Can we talk about Rushmore? Rushmore. Yeah. You know, um, <laughs> that was the second film that I did with uh, Wes Anderson. Uh, we had done um, Bottle Rocket before that. Yeah. And um, Bottle Rocket didn't do well economically for them, mm-hmm. but critically it did. And and when I first saw, saw it, I was like, this guy has an interesting voice mm-hmm. and an interesting take on, on our culture. And so yeah. uh, it was really interesting to work with him. Rushmore was like, um, we were still getting comfortable. We'd already just, uh, you know, kind of gotten a dialogue working, worked out. You know, yeah. it's like I understood what he meant when he said said things, including that he meant it when he said, I don't want brass in my film. <laughs> Like um, it wasn't until uh, 
Life Aquatic, Tenenbaums or Life Aquatic? I think it was Life Aquatic was the first one he let me put. Um, no, maybe uh, Tenenbaums. Yeah. No, Life Aquatic because it was Gene Hackman. It was underneath the Gene Hackman character. So it's like it's before he before he, he went, what was that? When I put in a trombone <laughs> on, on a close-up of Gene Hackman's face, and he goes, what was that? And I go, that was a trombone. And he goes, oh. <laughs> But uh, he's, he's, uh, snuck it in there. <laughs> he's like one of the people that if you're going to go through all the people you work with in yeah. Hollywood, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of people that they're great craftsmen or they're, you know, even good storytellers, but they're not always artists. And he's yeah. a guy that I just would say, well, he's 100 percent an artist and he traded things, you know, like including money or or those kind of things to to retain artistic control over his uh, films. He probably still does that stuff. And I think it served him well because he's got a unique, he's got yeah. a unique take on film and, and he, it's really likable because of that. He's a real artist. You know, when you think of kind of going to a gallery and looking at an artist's paintings, he has, it's, so he's almost the kind of film equivalent of that, you know, in terms of one of those great artists, I think. Is he quite specific about what he wants musically? Does he know yeah. what he wants? Yeah, it, it's like, um, you know, it, he gets, he, he trusts you a little more as you go along. That's what yeah. happened with us. We became came where he trusted me a lot more. Is he tr- to the point where by the time we were doing Life Aquatic, he goes, Mark, I'm thinking about having a composer for the ship in here. And, uh, you know, I, you know, they bought new, they haven't been successful. And, you know, they, they're buying new cookware for the kitchen and, and the kitchen's up to date, but all of their recording equipment is old. It's, you know, like from the late seventies, early eighties and uh, all their, you know, the musician doesn't have a good recording studio. His studio is dated. It's from like the late seventies or something. What kind of synthesizers and keyboards would he be using? I go, well, you know, it sounds like he'd be using the, the stuff that I wrote the early Devo records on, we wrote early <laughs> Devo records on it. So we went down in the basement and pulled out like some things, including an old Overheim TVS one. And that became, that synthesizer became the, uh, the basis for the, for the, um, all the attack on Ping Island stuff, all that. synth for it and um i don't know I, I i always enjoyed working with him because he always had his own take on the world mm-hmm. that was kind of fresh and interesting and he's articulate a uh, very smart guy and um they're all like ten and bombs. 
is just yeah. one of the I think one of the best films of all time. It's definitely oh, in my my yeah. it's definitely in my kind of favorite films of all time. That's nice. Yeah, he reminded he just reminded me of what it was like the early days of Devo, you know, because because like we always were paid attention to every single detail. Mm-hmm. Jerry, Bob and I, we would be we, we did our album covers, our costumes, everything. All same. And he was like that. He would I remember him taking me to see a, a, on set uh, for the Tannenbaums. Yeah, uh, I went to Harlem and went through this house that they were using and we were walking through it and he's showing me where all the scenes were going to be. And we get up to the kid's bedroom where they were going to shoot that morning and we're talking. And then he's distracted me. He goes, Mark, you got to excuse me for a minute. And he went over and he said, okay, paint over all that stuff. That's not how those kids would paint. And because there was painting on the wall above their, the bunk bed. Yeah. And it had a planted wall from the ceiling and the bunk bed was here and, and the kids had painted up there. And he says, take that off. And he, he made him take it off and he went up and repainted the whole ceiling before they started shooting the scene. It, that, that's kind of the way his mind worked. And, and I really appreciated that. It, it, it really, it, it really seemed like a real artist. It felt like a, like I was working with an artist. I, I love that. It felt like such a beautiful relationship as an observer anyway, and a fan. It felt like it was almost kind of like his, the, the reciprocation of, of admiration kind of was there because it felt like he was a fan of, he could well have been inspired by Devo, you know, in terms of what you were talking about, in terms of your ethos and how you were as a band and what you, you know, attention to detail and that kind of thing. And it, you've, it feels like the exact thing that he would be inspired by and the type of thing that he would really be into. Yeah, I, when when I first got hired for Bottle Rocket, uh, a woman from the studio said to me, she said, Mark, well, there's this guy, he's a new guy, <laughs> you know, we're going to do a film with him. Uh, and I asked him who he wanted for a composer, and he only had one name. He only wanted to work with you. So I went and I saw the film, and the first time I saw Bottle Rocket, it was at a screening in Santa Monica, and it was one of those things where high school kids could sign up and then they got out of school a little bit early. They could go see it and they got free Coke and, and food and hot dogs and all the stuff at the concession stand. And then they were supposed to stay long enough to do a question and answer. Yeah. These kids figured out how they could just go get the food and get out. <laughs> and kids were writing stuff on their, on their um, scorecards, like how come there was no nudity? We should have seen her tits. You know, it was like stuff where you were like, what? I can't believe it. It, I saw people walking out of the room, but I was watching it and I was thinking, this is kind of the most interesting take on our culture right now that I've seen uh, in film. And I really wanted to be here because of that. And yeah, we met and he says, yeah, I think they told me I got the worst score they've ever had at a focus group for my film. And, and it was just because people weren't taking it seriously, I think. But um, I don't know. There was stuff, there was, there were all these things about him that, that just made it really enjoyable. And, mm. and as we went from movie to movie, he got a little braver about what kind of instruments. So by the time we did a Life Aquatic, we used a 50-piece orchestra.
he wouldn't let me go out and record it in a in a um, orchestral recording studio like yeah. we should, and we would have been done with it in one day. Instead, I had to bring in like seven people at a time and record them into this room, into the room next door here. And oh, it took wow. us like weeks, what should have taken us one day. <laughs> but, you know, it's like, but it's like he felt safe in this room here. He mm -hmm. felt like, here he felt like he was, he was in, you know, safe territory. And I was kind of like, that's okay. I'll do that if that's what you need. When you think about Tenenbaums, though, in particular with the, the needle drops that there are in that film, you know, everything from Dylan and Velvet Underground and, you know, all, all that kind of stuff that's in there. There's some Elliot Smith and the Stones. There's a beautiful synergy between those and the score. And I wondered whether you were you knew what music he was going to be using, the existing music he would be he was going to be using in the film. So that not that there was a link between it, but that it that it worked because it could quite easily not. Yeah, that's a composer's job. You know, it's like that's what you that's what you need to do is help make it seem seamless. And and uh, Elliot Smith, in the case of Elliot, he was all freaked out because uh, the studio had given him this contract that said that they were going to own the recording and all this stuff. And he was all freaked out about it. And and he, he was like, oh, he goes, Mark, it's just what's going on? What are they, why are they asking for all these things? You know, cause he'd never done that. And I said, well, that's the way it works in film. You know, they, they need to have control of that stuff. They can't negotiate with you every time they sell the movie in another territory like China or, or Europe or Russia or something. So, yeah. so they need to be able to have all those rights now. And, and uh, so I hope talk him down. For, for <laughs> Stack charm around your neck, strung out a thing, calling some friend, trying to cash some check. He's acting dumb, that's what you've come to expect. Needle in the hay, needle in the hay, needle in the hay, needle in As that relationship kind of progressed, how was the, the 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 work start for you? Was it a case of he would send you a script and you would start writing from that? Yeah, I'll tell you, it was interesting because the first movie, you know, I read a script first and then I yeah. saw I saw the screening and then I met with him. And then the, the second movie, he sent me the script right away and we talked about it. And by the time we got to Royal Tannenbaums, I was writing themes for him that he could put on his uh, Walkman Amazing. and listen to while he was filming. Correct. And, 
life, by the time we got to Life Aquatic, he was sitting on one of these couches back here and was asking me if I wanted to be uh, the composer in the film. I go, oh, Wes, I really am not into acting at all. I don't <laughs> enjoy that at all. Uh, but thank you for the offer. And he was sitting here writing and talking about doing things in the, in, you know, that's when he was asking me about the synthesizer. And he was like yeah. writing stuff up back there on the couch there. You know, it just got closer and closer as it went, you know. Yeah. Your your score for Thor Ragnarok is extraordinary. It's so brilliant. That film is so much fun. Was that a lot of work? Yeah. I mean, you know, it was like um, two hours worth of music, I think. <laughs> so good. Maybe more. And actually, I probably wrote close to three hours because the original cut that, that Taika did was yeah. a three-hour cut. And he oh, had, I want to see that three-hour cut. <laughs> oh, you would. Because I'll tell you, he crafted it more like Flesh Gordon. Yeah. But it was a little too over the top too far out for Marvel. And Marvel's a great company, I gotta say. I, I I ended up with a real strong respect for them after I worked with them because I just looked at their movies and thought, oh, you know, guys in tights is stupid. And, yeah. and I, mean, I have two daughters, so I had to go see all the stuff like Frozen and everything, but, <laughs> uh, you know, when I, when they were kids. But, but my neighbors had two boys, and so we'd go with them sometimes to see like a Marvel film or something. Yeah. I just remember we were watching something, and about 10 or 20 minutes into the film, it's like I'd been at work all day, and last thing I needed to hear was another movie so i started to fall asleep to this music that's going dun, 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 and then i i woke up like about 40 minutes later and it was the same music going because they were just it was the exact same music they were just cutting loops of music and and so when i worked on it with uh, on the on thor i decided i was going to write all original for every scene and not not let that happen The other thing was, is I wrote for that other hour's worth of film. It was all this really crazy footage of like Jeff Goldblum's planet. And Jeff Goldblum was, man, him, he just went way out there uh, in, in the, uh, for a whole long time. And you saw there was all this stuff that didn't make it into the final version of the film, unfortunately. But it one was day. pretty good. One know, day, so. maybe, Mark. One day, yeah. he'll let us see it. One day. Yeah, I put a bunch of it out on... Uh, uh, at record store day about three did you i am going to look for that once we finish this chat for sure it, it's all music that was was supposed to go to uh to jeff goldblum's island and just all got dropped <laughs> but mutant m-u-t-a-n-t yeah. flora f-l-o-r-a
you know what's one of the, the TV shows that saved me during the whole lockdown period as well? Um, was What We Do in the Shadows. Oh, oh yeah. I love that show so you much. Know, I think I think the show's even better than the film that, that they did first. I think, you know, I think it came out so good, the TV. Oh, the TV. <laughs> it's so it's good. I got a couple guys that work with me here at Mutato and we're laughing every episode <laughs> I'm so doing we, another one with him now. Are you? Yeah, we have another one that's, uh, I don't think it comes out till next year or the end of this year. One of the, I don't know the release date exactly. What, with Taika? Yeah, with Taika. Uh, it's called Our Flag Means Death. And um, the short story is, it's imbecilic pirates about 200 years ago. And, oh, Yes. Uh, and um, he posted I, I, something I, about this on social media the other day, actually. Yeah, I'm not going to tell you anything. I'll let him okay. do any of that. But it's, <gasps> it's really, really funny. And Maybe it's we can put the score on. Yeah. Maybe we can have a, a, a another conversation then when, when, when that comes out as well. Before we go, the last thing I want to mention before we run out of time is the Lego movies. Oh, my God. They are so <laughs> fantastic. Ah, uh, thanks. You know, Chris and Phil, they, they owe me uh, an agent fee for that because I, I got called in when it was over, uh, when they were first, the, the producers were first working on it, and they had me come in to score a, a sizzle reel for it. They were trying to sell the studio on the yeah. idea, and um, it was somebody over at the studio that became a producer that was attached to it still, and um, I said, you know what? Maybe before you before you play this for anybody, you should meet a couple guys I know. I said you should meet these guys, Chris and Phil. I, I did um, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, and mm-hmm. did a couple other other projects together. And I said you might you might like their take on this, and they go really okay. Can you do that? So so um, I got them connected with the with the Warner Brothers. For you need show. to have a word about that for sure, definitely. <laughs> Um, definitely but um oh yeah I mean th- those I could watch them I mean I have watched them double figures uh, at least there are films you can just go back to again and again and again they're brilliant well um I know that because of, because of that show I now have a, a Devo energy dome that's made entirely out of Lego parts and I wore it uh, at the academy for uh, the year that uh that we performed uh, everything is awesome oh well, bravo and well-deserved, I'd say. Um, listen, Mark, it's been so great to to chat to you and, and talk about just a few of the fantastic projects and work that you do. And I hope we get the chance to do it again, um, maybe around that, about, about the, uh, the, the, the pirate, <laughs> Tyka's pirate film, we can get another episode uh, in and, and dive deeper. All right. I hope so too. Thanks oh. for uh, talking with me. Thank you. You take care and stay safe. It's lovely to meet you. Thank you so much. The same. Bye, Mark.
From the first Lego movie, that's the prologue, rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with the wonderful Mark Mothersbaugh. My huge thanks to Mark for taking the time to talk to us, as well as having the new Thor movie to look forward to. It sounds like Taika's new pilot project is going to be extremely entertaining indeed. Head to edithbowman.com to hear my conversation with Taika, as well as all previous episodes of the podcast. You'll also be able to find links to Spotify playlists for every show, which features the music we play in the order it appears so you can listen to the tracks in full. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK. And please do drop us an email via our email address. It's just info at edithbowman.com. That could be about guests you want to hear on the show, episodes you've listened to, films that you've loved, films that you've not loved, whatever it is, please do get in touch. That's info at edithbowman.com. Next up, um, something a little bit different, but something I absolutely loved. Um, I've been talking about this film, this documentary called Ennio, um, which has been directed by um, one of his long-term collaborators. They worked together on a number of films, including Cinema Paradiso, Giuseppe Tornatori. And he's made this beautiful documentary about Ennio Morricone and I just think it's one of the most emotional films I've seen in a long time I think because I love soundtracks so much and obviously he has been well this documentary really delves into how influential he has been on so many levels to film and music and so to celebrate the film and to talk about him and to talk about um, their reaction to the film um, I brought together three people Matthew Herbert who is a composer and he's also remixed uh, quite a lot of Morricone's work and he's featured on this podcast before uh, Lucy Bright who is, is an extraordinary um, music supervisor and has worked with some of the best contemporary composers around and Academy Award winning British director of The Mission, uh, Roland Joff who features in the documentary and obviously talks about working with Morricone on The Mission so it's a nice kind of roundtable discussion about the documentary, but also about Ennio and his work and the man uh, between myself, Matthew Herbert, Roland Joff and Lucy Bright. So that is on next week's show. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. <laughs> 